Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Our third grade teacher read a child's biography of Mozart. And I suspect most of my classmates were bored out of their minds, but I was completely entranced by the idea of this young boy who could write symphonies and concertos. And I just decided that's when I wanted to be a composer. In this episode, I speak with composer John Adams in the first half of a two-part conversation. John Adams is one of the greatest composers and conductors of our day. Among his most celebrated works are the operas Nixon in China and Dr. Atomic, and compositions for voice and orchestra, The Wound Dresser, with text by Walt Whitman, and Harmonium, with text by John Donne and Emily Dickinson. Following 9-11, John was commissioned to compose On the Transmigration of Souls, a 25-minute work that incorporates a chorus and taped voices, for which he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Music in 2003. John is also celebrated for his orchestral and chamber works, including Violin Concerto, Shaker Loops, and the Dharma at Big Sur, which is the theme music of this podcast. I've known John for 40 years, since he was head of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music's New Music Ensemble, and I was a stock boy with an interest in avant-garde theater and music. Through a mutual friend, Anthony Nazo, the Dada found and spliced tape electronic composer, we met and moved within the same circles that comprised the new music scene in the Bay Area in the early 70s. At that time, John was transitioning from being an experimental, electronic, minimalist composer, influenced by the likes of Terry Riley and Steve Reich, to being a much more eclectic, original, and confident composer, bursting with one bold and complex composition after another. John turned 70 this year, and in recognition, there have been special retrospectives of his work in London, Paris, Amsterdam, Geneva, Stockholm, New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. I sat down recently with John at the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles, where he was rehearsing a concert version of his opera, Nixon in China. This is the first of two episodes from that conversation. John, uh, thanks so much for giving I'm us your time I'm delighted to be today. with you after so long. It's been a long time. Yes. Speaking of a long time, let's go back to the early years uh, in New England. Let's go back to Woodstock. Vermont and Concord, New Hampshire, and the access that you had then to musical instruction and performance. What kind of access did you have as a young child? Well, I grew up in two very rural villages in uh, Vermont, New Hampshire. My father had been 4F during World War II because of a polio condition uh, he had had as a child. And he had a rough time during the war, but he wanted to be an artist. And um, so he and my mother moved when I was about six months old up to Woodstock, Vermont, which was um, kind of a bohemian enclave. Which know. is a little hard to believe now. Yes. Because now it's, it's kind a of real, a Rockefeller it's resort. It's a boutique enclave now. <laughs> But um, probably some of the only Jews in all of northern New England were clustered there. And uh, some, I suspect, former communists. Uh, You know, it was quite a community. And then there were all these New England farmers. But there I I met some people who were friends of my parents who were in the local theater company. And they gave me my first exposure to classical music, which was, of course, you know, listening to LP records. 
But my dad was also a, a fairly accomplished amateur clarinet player. And um, I took my first lessons from him. Oh, on the clarinet? On the clarinet. We never had a piano, not until it was too late. You know, I'd lost that that there's just a certain point in one's life, whether you're an athlete or a dancer or a, uh, a performing musician, where if you don't get going at a very young age, you never have it. So I, I lost that with the piano, but I became a, a very accomplished clarinet player. My parents moved when I was in the second grade to a small village outside of Concord, New Hampshire. And um, I started playing in a local band and then in, with an amateur orchestra that was sponsored by uh, a local just New Hampshire State Hospital, which was a mental hospital. Did your father play in the same orchestra? Yes, I I played with my dad in both the band and, and the orchestra. He was a very sweet, gentle man, loved music, and both my parents loved literature. My mother was very dynamic um, and, and loved to act and sing. And uh, the first time I actually ever appeared on a stage as a performer was... Uh, in a local production of South Pacific. <laughs> My mother was uh, Bloody Mary, and I was the little um, Polynesian boy. <laughs> Do you remember any lines that you had? Dites-moi pourquoi la vie est belle. Oh, I think bon that's the only line I did have. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. But uh, quickly thereafter, or when you aged a few years, um, you went to Dartmouth for a summer program, and there you met a very dynamic woman, Louise Verskergen. And you were then in high school when you met her? I was. Um, I went to this contemporary music festival at Dartmouth College, I'd say probably in 1964 and 1965. I went two summers. And I was a real oddball there because all of the students had come from New York and Philadelphia and very sophisticated places. And I was this kid from rural New Hampshire thrown in there. But I you know, I, I think it was clear to the teachers there that I was highly motivated and really uh, devoted to learning. And um, I didn't have a lot of fundamentals. I couldn't play the piano and, you know, acquiring harmony and just sort of basic tools was, was hard for me. On the other hand, I was a, a really good performer and I had several teachers who identified me and gave me special opportunities. And uh, I'm intensely grateful for that. So what was the program like at Dartmouth that summer? I think what I remember most about it was that I got to meet a lot of composers. They, they were invited there, the great Mexican composer Carlos Chavez, Henry Cowell, who was, um, you know, one of the true original American mavericks. I know that term is used altogether too often these days, but he he was a real maverick, and he was one of the great influences on John Cage. And I met uh, Walter Piston, who's not that well known now, but was a highly accomplished sort of neoclassical composer. Um, and that was critical because uh, he was a retired professor at Harvard, and, and uh, he helped me to get into Harvard, which was uh, very important for me. Yeah. Had you thought of composing before that time? Well, this would probably shock you, but I decided to become a composer when I was 10 years old. And I know exactly why, because, well, I'd say nine years old. 
our third grade teacher in this little elementary school in uh, East Concord, New Hampshire, read uh, Child's biography of Mozart. That year was the 200th anniversary of Mozart's uh, birth. And I suspect most of my classmates were bored out of their minds, but I was completely entranced by the idea of this young boy who could write symphonies and concertos. And I just decided that's when I wanted to be a composer. And uh, with a few passages in my life um, where I was slightly distracted towards becoming a conductor, I, I would say it never really varied. Yeah. So you went soon thereafter to Harvard. What was it there that attracted you as opposed to Yale or as opposed to Juilliard or some other place? Why Harvard? I think I probably went to Harvard, first of all, because neither of my parents had had a college education. Um, my mother grew up in a family that simply didn't appreciate the value of, of college. And my father uh, went two years and then the Depression hit. So for them, a college education, and particularly Harvard, was was the great dream. And... I grew up in northern New England, so Harvard was uh, kind of this uh, city on the hill, this institution of great learning. Uh, Of course, I arrived right at the beginning of probably the most traumatic period in the history of the university. I got there uh, in the fall of 1965, and uh, I left in the summer of 1972. One, I believe. So I was there during the period of uh, the Vietnam War, of the great eruption of protest of LSD and psychedelia. You know, it was during those years that I was at Harvard that we had the first Earth Day and the kind of dawning awareness of ecology, uh, the sexual revolution. It was a great time. <laughs> yeah. Did you go thinking that you would study composition? I arrived at Harvard thinking that I was going to um, learn about 20 languages and become... Oh, that's right. Your first a was a Greek, of, ancient Greek that you first yes, studied. Yeah. I was going to become a that professor. That was ambitious. And uh, I failed uh, ancient Greek my first semester. Uh, I simply didn't know how to learn a classical language. But I did well in music. And the great thing about Harvard was that there was a long tradition of student-produced and student-organized art events, you know, whether it was drama or dance or music. And so right off the bat, I was involved in creating my own performances. And my junior year, I I conducted a performance in the dining hall of uh, the house where I lived of uh, Mozart's Marriage of Figaro and the stage director was uh, a classmate two years older than me by the name of John Lithgow. (laughs) Well, that was a good start. What about, I I think it was then that Pierre Boulez paid a visit and you must have met him then? Uh, Boulez came to town on tour as a conductor. He guest conducted the Boston Symphony. I never actually met him. I mean, didn't shake his hand. I'm afraid if I had, I probably would have said something very insulting because uh, I was very uh, confused and intimidated by what he represented. I mean, Boulez was the sort of archetypal example of post-war European modernism. And when I look back on that, it was a style of musical composition that was highly theoretical, highly 
orthodox with what I felt and I still feel was a lot of kind of intolerant attitude towards uh, creativity and towards style. You know, Saul Bellow once made a comment about style and I can't cite exactly. I think I found it in one of his letters, but he said there's style and then there's voice. And we don't think of Bellow as a great stylist, not in the sense that we do, let's say, of Henry James or James Joyce, um, but we think of Bellow's incredible voice. And I feel that my rebellion against high modernism and music, typified, for example, by composers like uh, Boulez and in our country, Elliot Carter, and even in a sense by John Cage, I feel that my rebellion was really one of not wanting to be obsessed with style, but rather to develop my own voice. Yeah. But you were either close to or impressed by Leon Kirchner and Earl Kim on the faculty at Harvard. And I think of Earl Kim as a high-styled modernist. But he was encouraging of you? And you respected that of him? I had several professors while I was at Harvard, and I, I, I didn't get along with any of them really very well, except for Louise Voskirchen, who really wasn't a composer. But, you know, I fought with them. Largely, it was a father-son thing. You know, I, I just resented. Uh, in the case of Kirshner, he kept reminding us that no matter what we did, we'd never be as good as Schubert. And imagine having a, a father who said, you know, no matter how hard you try, you won't be as good as your uncle or something like that. And uh, in the case of Earl Kim, I just felt that he he was a lovely man, but his model was not the right one for me because he obsessed over every note and it took him five or ten years to write a, a single piece. That was an era of enormous blockage for so many composers because they felt in order to be relevant, in order to be au courant, they had to write in this kind of stingy, theory-bound style of 12-tone composition. And a lot of them, I think, really basically didn't want to do that. Even Aaron Copland felt at the end of his life that he needed to write 12-tone music. And um, in retrospect, it was his least interesting music. Do you think that Harvard was good to you by making you want to work against it? Well, Harvard was good for me because I got a very good basic training in the tools of music there. And I got an appreciation for great art. I know that sounds kind of tony, but I mean it. You know, I sat through classes of analysis of Beethoven piano sonatas. And then, you know, I took literature courses one of my teachers was Neil Rudenstein, who later became president of the university. And I remember reading, deep reading of Yeats and Shakespeare and George Eliot. And those plus, you know, the late night bullshit sessions you have with your, your roommates, those are really what create an education. Much later, of course, when you are composing as a profession and as well as, a, as an identity, I suppose, Texts are extremely important to your composition, whether it be Whitman or Emily Dickinson or John Donne or whatever it might be. Uh, so I suppose that that's also a contribution that Harvard made to your art, putting deeply into you this sense of the power and beauty of words and the rhythm of language. I think 
my literary interests really, I, I have to credit my parents for that. As I mentioned, neither of them had a college education, but literature and art and music were the holy grail for them. And um, there was literature in our house from the day I can remember. And, you know, going to a bookstore was the most savoring, wonderful experience. And it still is, you know, my wife and I are, if we're walking down the street and this is a bookstore, we, we can't, you know, hold ourselves from going in. And I credit that to my parents. And of course, Harvard helped. Well, you, you talked also about the time between 64, 65 and 72, uh, that period of time in which, of course, uh, rock and roll music was, was effervescent, particularly, uh, you mentioned uh, the Beatles with the White Album of interest to you, but also Hendrix and Jefferson Airplane, uh, but also Coltrane and Miles mm-hmm. Davis and Eric mm-hmm. Dolphy, and, and then also John Cage. So that's quite a mixture, but it's all of that mixture is alternative to what you were learning in the classroom, I guess. Huh? Yeah, I mean, none of that ever appeared in any uh, course survey at the Harvard Music Department. It was a really tunnel vision there. I mean, our course requirement to get a degree in music was... It started with Gregorian chant and ended with Stravinsky, and it was, you know, no reference to any kind of uh, popular music or uh, music from other cultures. It was kind of, what is it, the great books, the Mortimer Adler, they used to be able to get the great books, which is all these white guys from, you know, from Greece up to, uh, I don't know, Joyce or something so everything that I did outside of that, and much of which ended up helping me become who I am as a composer, was sort of subversive activity. You know, whether it was going to hear Cream or the Paul Butterfield Band at one of the local clubs in Boston or, or in New York, or whether it was playing saxophone, you know, in my dorm with a jazz pianist or um, picking out Beatle tunes from the album on the piano. Those were the things that I think actually had as much effect in creating my musical genotype as what I learned in the classroom. Yeah. Was it about the same time that electronic music becomes something of interest to you? And that is it then that you have your first synthesizer, the Studebaker? <laughs> Uh, electronic music had been around since the early 50s, as soon as, you know, magnetic tape became readily available. And, you know, there were composers like Stockhausen in Germany who had been making uh, electronic pieces back in, the, I'd say, mid-1950s. And I was aware of all that. And the Harvard Music Department acquired uh, a synthesizer about, I'm guessing, right around 1968 or so. I think the professors only allowed it to come in simply because they knew that it, you know all the other music departments had one, but they they found the most obscure room in the building to hide it in, and you know everybody was interested in it like a new baby for uh, a couple of months, and then it was completely abandoned. But I I spent a lot of time creating pieces uh, on it, and um, then I moved out to California in 1971. And shortly after that, I started learning a little bit of uh, electronics enough to be able to build my own. Well, that's where the Studebaker comes in. Clumsy synthesizer, yeah. which I but, but I you named wrote as, an electronic composition. I think while you were still at Harvard, called I Heavy did. Metal. Heavy Metal, yes, long before the genre was invented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and how did you um, 
get to sort of play around with the synthesizer? Was there anyone there that who could help you? Was there either an undergraduate or a graduate student or a faculty member who could do that? Or did you just there, find your way You know, it's it amazing own? how, I don't know, word gets around. Maybe there was another student or, you know, I don't think there was a faculty member that taught me anything. But the thing with the synthesizer, it's like with a computer. You, you go in there into this environment and you, you basically self-teach through trial and error. What was heavy metal like? <laughs> well, heavy metal was a big, loud collage of a piece that included readings from William Burroughs' Naked Lunch um, by one of my classmates who had a voice that sounded just like William Burroughs and uh, a lot of synthesizer sounds and, and also recorded things. I remember taking out some pots and pans uh, from a kitchen and recording them and then processing the sounds through various modules like ring modulation and filtering. So it sounded a little bit like a John Cage or Stockhausen piece, but uh, but the William Burroughs was what made it special. <laughs> <laughs> Where was it performed? In your undergraduate house? Well, it it wasn't a performing piece. It lived on a on a reel of scotch tape so you know if you came over to my apartment and we had a couple of joints you could experience it there <laughs> probably under the circumstances that's how you should have experienced it <laughs> So you do pick up and leave after two years of graduate school, I think, out to San Francisco. What was your intention in going? You know, I'd, I'd spent my entire life living in New England. I'd, I'd never been out of New England. I'd maybe gone to New York once or twice for brief trips. And uh, I'd never been to Europe. And part of the reason was that, you know, the Vietnam War was, was hanging over me for almost all the time I was in college. If In those days, if you dropped out of college, you would immediately hear from your draft board. So when I finally was free of that threat, um, I'd been reading, I read Henry Miller's book about Big Sur, and I read Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, and uh, I just decided I wanted to go to San Francisco. I didn't know anybody there, but California just seemed like sufficiently far away from the East Coast and from everything I'd grown up with. Um, so I left with the woman that was then my, my first wife, and we drove across the country in a dilapidated Volkswagen Beetle, which kept breaking down. And I expected to maybe live there for six months or something. And um, in fact, I, I never went back. Yeah. Oh, but a friend of yours made a contact, and I think it was Ivan Shrepnin. That's right. Who was a composer, also teaching at Harvard. And he put you into contact with some of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, which led to your teaching position there, and you're being head of the New Music Ensemble. Is that more or less right? That's right. Um, the only job that I could find was working on a 
in a warehouse on the waterfront in Oakland. So um, I actually had to join the Teamsters Union and, and I had the grandiose title of being a lumper. And a lumper was uh, these poor souls that had to go into these big containers and actually by hand pull out whatever goods were in them and put them on pallets, which would then be driven off to various parts of the warehouse on a forklift. And I remember that uh, while I was doing that and thinking, well, I couldn't do this much longer, and I was reluctantly realizing I'd have to go back to Harvard and get a PhD, I got a phone call uh, from my friend Yvonne Cherepnine, who said that there was a, a job opening at the San Francisco Conservatory, which is a very small school at that time, housed in a building that had been a, a home for unwed mothers out in the sunset in outer San Francisco. So I went in and interviewed for the job, and uh, the president, whose name was Milton Salkin, was clearly looking for a bargain, and uh, he saw a good bargain in me because here I was uh, working for $4 an hour as a lumper, and uh, you know I had a, two degrees from Harvard and a fair past as a performer and had played as a substitute with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, so he took a risk, and I ended up staying there for 10 years. Yeah. I moved to San Francisco in 1973, and I was interested in the world of which you were a part. And the first time I saw you, I didn't meet you at the time, was at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music at a performance of the New Music Ensemble. And I was impressed by the ambition, and I was impressed by the numbers of students you had. And I knew vaguely about the culture of the region, the role of Mills College. What was it like then? What for you as a young, budding composer? Was it helpful? Was it exciting? Was it encouraging? You know, I think in retrospect, the most important thing was that even though I knew the classical canon, Beethoven, Stravinsky, Wagner, uh, and I loved it, I viewed myself as a renegade, you know, a real outlaw, and that there was a community of avant-garde composers. I guess John Cage was sort of the pater familias of it, which included, you know, people like Robert Ashley at Mills College and Alvin Lussier, uh, who I think at the time taught at uh, Wesleyan, and Gordon Mumma, and further afield, people in Europe, and, you know, it was a very um, kind of free-form society of experimental music and with the emphasis on experiment. You know, um, Cage had sort of given us license to uh, consider almost any kind of experience that involved sound as a concert or as music. And I would say probably in retrospect, most of what we did I think had very minimal value, but it was fun. And it was also very much a period, you know, it was just the zeitgeist of the early 70s. And then, you know, it's funny because like within seven or eight years, um, minimalism kind of came in and, and uh, you know, it, it was a more organized approach to music and it drew audiences with much more intensity. Yeah. Uh, it was at the time when, in those early years when I got there, that you were devising performances of something that you called homemade guerrilla electronics. <laughs> and that's when the Studebaker synthesizer comes in. Yes, right. Well, uh, yeah, that became sort of an ethic in a way. I mean, a lot of the composers I, I knew were, we were all building our own electronics. I think the 
inspiration for that was um, David Tudor, who was part of John Cage's uh, circle. And David Tudor was an avant-garde pianist, but he also became obsessed with you know, little analog circuits and things. Um, this is in the era before digital electronics, so I used to read these <laughs> these really boring manuals on uh, transistors and uh, circuits, and then I would drive out to um, a surplus. It was like a shack uh, out by the Oakland airport called Mike Finns, and, you know, there'd be these bins of uh, resistors and transistors and capacitors, and I, I just was fascinated by it, probably because I really didn't know very much about it, but um, I built these modules, and the module became the piece, which was, again, it was very much what David Tudor was about. And it was about that time you performed something called lo-fi, <laughs> yes. as opposed to hi-fi, in the Hall of Flowers at Golden Gate Park. And I recall going there on that night, that occasion, wow. with all these palm trees yes. around about. So, I can't believe and, you were there. Yeah, really? And the, the occasion that I remember participating in involved um, directions to either turn the dial on a radio left or right. Yeah. And it was like five seconds, ten seconds, spin it around. And then, so That's you gathered right. all these voices and sounds from across the universe, and it was all mixed up. There must have been 30 people involved. That's right. Uh, I had all my students going, and uh, part of the project was we went to various like Salvation Army stores, and we bought old 78 RPM records and old uh, you could actually buy, in those days, record players. And then we would, you know, I don't I remember having Liberace and Frank Sinatra and the Andrews Sisters. These are all old 78. And taking the music and then putting it through one of my crazy synthesizer modulators. And yeah, there's somewhere there's a picture of me uh, in the middle of that performance, and I have a, a, a bass fiddle bow, and I'm producing a sound from a saw blade that's hanging <laughs> from the ceiling. <laughs> but it was also about that time that you composed American Standard, I think, mm -hmm. and later, I think, uh, Christian Zeal and Activity. Mm -hmm. But I think of the latter in particular as having some resonance with Gavin Breyer's Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. And Gavin Breyer's, as I recall, it's the first time I'd ever heard of him, was about that time. Did he come to San Francisco or was it just... Uh, Robert time? Ashley introduced me to uh, Gavin Breyer's via mail, you know, via, via good old-fashioned airmail, and I began a correspondence with him, and then I invited him. I got a little tiny uh, amount of money from the administration of the conservatory and invited him to come, and it was the first time he ever came to the United States, the first time his music was ever done there. We did both of his at that point, quite well-known pieces, Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me and uh, The Sinking of the Titanic. This was long before he did the uh, the remake of Jesus' Blood with Tom Waits. Oh, that I don't know. Because my memory of Jesus' Blood was a whole orchestration of That's instruments right. behind it. Yeah. Well, the idea, what Jesus' Blood is, is uh, it's just a little... Uh, like an eight-bar phrase of a street person with a Cockney accent, obviously a man very, very down on his luck, singing this, you know, two-phrase thing, Jesus' blood never failed me yet, never failed me yet. That's all it is. Jesus' blood never failed me yet, never failed me yet. 
And it goes over and over and over. And with each repetition, you would add an instrument and a harmony. And uh, after 60 minutes, you know, you could have like a whole football field of people accompanying it. This is, again, it was a typical 70s piece. But it was also at that time that Ingram Marshall becomes a friend of yours, I think. Was he English? Or what was that accent? No, Ingram from? Marshall was born and grew up in Westchester County. And uh, I met him uh, in San Francisco about 1974, 75. He, <laughs> he was living in a, an abandoned uh, you know, warehouse uh, underneath the freeway and used to cook these fantastic Indonesian dinners on a Coleman stove. And uh, he became my dearest friend, still is. And again, you know, he did a lot of live electronic music. Uh, what I loved about Ingram Marshall's music was that although it was electronic and uh, in a certain sense very experimental, um, it had a great soul. It was the first time I encountered an electronic composer who wrote music that really emotionally touched me the way, you know, a Mahler symphony uh, could. And, um, you know, we found that we had shared a lot of common things together. Uh, you know, we loved Sibelius and, and uh, we loved the Sierras and uh, we ended up buying cabins close to each other up in the mountains. Uh, it was about that time, too, that I think either you became aware of or certainly became much more familiar with and maybe even inspired by, in part, the music of Terry Riley and Steve Reich and Philip Glass. And I think I read once that you saw Einstein on the beach or you heard, I heard music, music from, music, it. Music yeah. from mm -hmm. it. And so those must have been adding into the mix of your sort of musical imagination because shortly thereafter, maybe in 1977 or so, you compose what you call your first mature composition, Fridge and Gates. It's really hard to describe, you know, where my head was at in the mid-70s. Uh, you know, I was 26, 27, 28. I absolutely was determined that I was a composer and would be a composer. It was never a time when I had any doubt about it, but I was kind of flailing around because, um, you know, th th there was a lot of of prestige given to modernist music. I'd pick up The New Yorker. There was a very influential critic at the time, Andrew Porter, uh, who wrote beautifully, and he was always given a ton of space. I mean, it was amazing. Every single issue of The New Yorker would have a long article about serious music. Hard to believe, but it was true. And I would read yet again a glowing account of some piece by Elliot Carter or, or some very modernist composer. And I was trying to make peace with the John Cage aesthetic, which I had taken to heart so strongly. And then I started hearing pieces by Glass and Reich, and they really appealed to me because, uh, first of all, they uh, went back to what I felt were the absolute sine qua non of music, which is pulsation, tonality, and some form of structural integrity. And I felt that modernism and music had atomized all of those elements. Uh, Stravinsky had, 
made wonderful uh, inroads in rhythmic complexity, but there was always this wonderful basic choreographic security with Stravinsky. But by the time Cage came along, everything was destroyed, and I desperately wanted those elements back in the music. Of course, they were always there in pop music, and I thought that the minimalism was really an astonishing moment because all those elements were back, but they were in a brand new guise. Yeah. Was Fridging Gates commissioned by anyone, or how did that happen? Fridging Gates is a big virtuoso piano piece, about 28 minutes long, nonstop, and I wrote it for uh, a very close friend of mine, a pianist, Mac McRae, who played it on a faculty recital at the San Francisco Conservatory, and um, it's amazing. It still gets played by pianists all over the place today. Shortly thereafter, maybe the next year, Shaker Loops, mm-hmm. well, it, Shaker Loops starts out as Wave Maker, and it was for the Kronos Quartet. Talk about Shaker Loops, because that's ambitious. Uh, I was conducting a, a group of students called the New Music Ensemble, and I kind of used them as a, you know to try out my ideas. And the first version of Shaker Loops, it's a work for uh, strings. The first version of that was actually, uh, I wrote for Kronos, but it was just a failure. I, I just made all kinds of strategic mistakes, and I'll never forget that first performance. It was a catastrophic performance. But I did have the good fortune to identify the elements in the piece that were worth keeping, and I realized it needed to be a larger ensemble, it needed to have a bass and so I, I expanded it to seven instruments and uh, performed it first, uh, I think it was in December 1978 at the San Francisco Conservatory. And right off the bat, it was clear that it was going to be a good piece. And I still do it a lot around, you know, I'm asked to do it.
So was that a turning point? Yes, I think that those two pieces, Fridging Gates and Shaker Loops, were definitely a turning point. And shortly after that, I sort of began being known as the second generation minimalist. I uh, remember there was an article in Time magazine uh, which featured Steve Reich and Terry Riley and Philip Glass and me. And, you know, people, who's this guy, John Adams, you know, because I wasn't at the time that well known, but the writer had identified me as part of the minimalist uh, juggernaut. And with that turning point in John's career, we end the first half of our conversation. We'll continue with the second half in the next episode. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Thank you.